Let's go ahead and pray. Lord, thank you so much for this morning, another day in which we as your body and bride can come together in fellowship to learn about you and grow in our walk with you. You are such an amazing God, one who created the heavens and everything in them, spoke all things into existence, yet knows us to our most intimate depths. We pray that this morning you would move in the depths of our souls and our hearts, sharing your grace, love, and truth today. Let this message be glorifying to you and edifying to your body, building us up and growing us closer to being like Christ. Amen. All right. So before we dive into Genesis chapter 29, I wanted to go ahead and bring us back up to speed on what we've gone through the past couple weeks. Uh, So a couple weeks ago, Grady was up here and he talked about Jacob and his brother Esau. Both of these men were twins born to Isaac, who was the promised son of Abraham. Abraham was called as the patriarch of God's people, and God had promised Abraham that he would have a son that would carry on the blessing that we heard in Hebrews 6, carry on the blessing and promise that God had given him. God chose Isaac, Abraham's son, as the man to carry the blessing, and Isaac had two sons with his wife Rebekah, Esau, and Jacob. In this time, it was custom that the oldest son, would get the lion's share of the blessing and inheritance. But God told Rebekah that he had chosen the younger over the older to carry the blessing, and that was back in Genesis chapter 25. Uh, If you missed that sermon or any of the other sermons on this, uh, we have our sermons recorded on video, uh, and it's on our YouTube channel. You can just go to YouTube and search for Maricopa Springs Family Church. Uh, if you'd rather listen to it uh, as opposed to watch it, we also have, a pot, have all of them recorded for podcasts. So you, again, podcast catcher with Maricopa Springs Family Church. Uh, so now, after God had told Rebecca that he had chosen Jacob, Jacob is born and he lives in a strained situation. God had said that Jacob would carry or would be the patriarch to carry the blessing of God's people, but tradition had been, like I said, the oldest son, which would be Esau, that would be the one with the inheritance. A little later, Esau traded his birthright uh, to Jacob for a bowl, bowl of stew. And when Isaac was nearing the end of his life, he called his sons to him to give them a blessing. And during that time, When he called his sons, Jacob disguised himself as Esau and deceived his father and took Esau's blessing. After that, we have Jacob then being sent by Isaac to Padamaram to take a wife from from one of Rachel's brother uh, Laban's daughters. On the journey, as we learned last week, on the journey, Jacob had a dream where God tells him that he is ever present with Jacob. So our reading today picks up with Jacob showing up in the land of Padamaram, where Laban and his daughters live. So let's start in verse 1 of chapter 29. Then Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of the people of the east. As he looked, he saw a well in the field, and behold, three flocks of sheep lying beside it. For out of that well the flocks were watered. The stone on the well's mouth was large, And when all the flocks were gathered there, the shepherd would roll the stone from the mouth of the well and water the sheep 
and put the stone back in its place over the mouth of the well. Jacob said to them, my brothers, where do you come from? They said, we are from Haran. He said to them, do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? They said, we know him. He said to them, is it well with him? They said, it is well. And see, Rachel, his daughter, is coming with the sheep. He said, behold, it is still high day. It is not time for the livestock to be gathered together. Water the sheep and go, pasture them. But they said, we cannot until all the flocks are gathered together and the stone is rolled from the mouth of the well. Then we water the sheep. While he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. Now as soon as Jacob saw Rachel's daughter, Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob came near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban's mother's brother, of Laban, his mother's brother. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and wept aloud. And Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's kinsman and that he was Rebekah's son. And she ran and told her father. As soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his house. Jacob told Laban all these things. And Laban said to him, surely you are my bone and my flesh. And he stayed with him a month. Then Laban said to Jacob, because you are my kinsman, should you therefore, therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what shall your wages be? Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Jacob loved Rachel, and he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, it is better that I give her to you than that I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. Then Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife that I may go into her, for my time is completed. So Laban gathered together all the people of the place and made a feast. But in the evening, he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob, and he went into her. Laban gave his female servant Zilpah to his daughter Leah to be her servant. And in the morning, behold, it was Leah. And Jacob said to Laban, what is this you have done to me? Did I not serve you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? Laban said, it is not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Complete the week of this one, and we will give you the other also in return for serving me another seven years. Jacob did so and completed her week. Then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. Laban gave his female servant Bilhah to his daughter Rachel to be her servant. So Jacob went into Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah and served Laban for another seven years. So I think it's interesting that this scene uh, has some similarities, but also some distinct differences between, uh, or when Abraham's servant comes to the same area to go find a wife for Isaac, back in chapter 24 of Genesis. First, both Jacob and the servant find themselves at a well near Haran. 
However, the servant sent by Abraham came prepared with a bride's price, while Jacob comes here with nothing. Yet both men return to their land with their bride or brides, one a little bit sooner than the other one. Uh, It points to an amazing aspect of God's plan unfolding in Scripture. God doesn't rely on what we bring to the table. In fact, it doesn't really matter what we bring to the table because God is already working in amazing ways through his perfect plan in spite of us. Now, I'm not saying that we're free to lackadaisically meander through life, just expecting God to pick up the pieces uh, and the messes that we make uh, and still work his perfect plan. We're called to so much more than that. We are loved and cherished by God more than anyone or anything could. And because of that love, we should love him above all others. And that love should be so poignant and excessive, it overflows from our hearts, manifesting itself as Christ-like behaviors with love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. It's what James is talking about when he speaks of works, those overflowing from the heart of a true God-loving believer. But what I think is important to understand with Jacob coming with nothing to the well is that even if you don't have anything, you've you've got nothing to physically give, nothing to contribute to God's purposes, his plan is still being completed perfectly. And because we know his plan is perfect and being completed perfectly, we can trust when circumstances or situations that we are in are dark or daunting. He will keep his promises. And he promised in Romans 8, verse 28, that he is working all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Christians, remember that. I want you to think also of another aspect, though, of Jacob at the well. Jacob is here for a wife after a tumultuous life of deception and sin And then, after a dream showing that God is constantly with him. The contrast between his story and the story of Abraham's servant getting Rebekah includes 14 years of service to Laban. Along with, what I might argue, just an enormously egregious deception. I'd say it's along the lines of maybe coercing a birthright or stealing a blessing? You see, I think it calls out one of the major sticking points of this story, uh, one of the major lessons we should pull from Jacob, not only in this portion of Scripture, but through much of his life. And if you're looking for an application phrase from this message, here it is. God forgives our wrongs, but sin may lead to negative effects. Uh, Jacob thus far had led a life of deception, so it isn't surprising that he also was deceived. But God is still faithful and keeps his promises, not because of us, but in spite of us. I'll say it again. God is still faithful and he keeps his promises. 
Now, some might say this is karma, that Jacob got what was coming to him, but no, this isn't karma. Karma is not a real thing. The idea of karma stems from Buddhism and Hinduism, and it has no place in the truth of Christ and our beliefs. What this is, though, is God working his perfect plan in spite of us. This is God working his plan while allowing us to grow in our understanding of him and better understand our reliance on him. He is showing us, much like Jacob sees, that God's way is always the best way, and we will never know more than him. And that should be obvious, right? But there are plenty of times I know that I'm guilty of, of thinking that my way is the best way, and, and that's every time that I sin. Now let's look at the night that Jacob gets married. He's worked seven years for Rachel, who, which, let me tell you, or which, let me tell you is not what would be considered back then a fair bridal price or a fair trade. Uh, usually a bride price was paid back then, uh, and that's when we see Abraham's servant bringing all of those gifts in exchange for Rebecca. It's somewhat interesting to me that Jacob, uh, th that Isaac doesn't send J Jacob with a bride price to pay, uh, but this is directly after Jacob deceives Isaac, so that may have pay played a price or played a part. Um, however, Scripture doesn't give us a definitive answer uh, to that question. So as far as a bride price to be paid, there is some contention among scholars about uh, the exact amount and what would have been fair. But they do agree on one thing, and that's that Jacob worked way longer than what would have been considered a fair price. Potentially twice as long. But Jacob was so enamored with Rachel... And the text says that Jacob thought uh, that Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance, very outwardly beautiful. Now we come to the marriage night, and it's a big feast. There's a party, and Laban has veiled Leah, not Rachel, veiled Leah up completely when he finally gives her to Jacob. Now, I, I know it seems hard to believe, right? Like, how does Jacob not know that it's Leah, not Rachel, under that veil? Again, it's hard to draw a definitive answer to that, but let's look at the situation. It's been a long feast, probably plenty of wine, a fully veiled bride, and it's, and it's nighttime now, so it's dark. Jacob may have drunk more than his fair share of wine and is experiencing the effects of that. And with Leah being covered and it being night, there must have been, I mean, there must have been a chance that Jacob missed this. Either way, he woke up in the morning to what was not who he expected at all. I can't help but feel heartbroken for Leah in this moment. I mean, she most likely isn't innocent. She knew what was happening during the feast. She went into that tent and she never spoke up to Jacob. The text thus far hasn't given us a whole lot about Leah, um, 
But we'll learn in the coming weeks that Leah was very much in love with Jacob. And I would imagine that might have been a motivating factor in her keeping silent. Again, we'll see more about Leah in the coming weeks, but as soon as Jacob wakes up, he is distraught and angry. And I can't say I, I blame him for being upset, right? He's, so, he's obviously been swindled. But he is the great swindler himself. But still, I, I can't help but feel like Leah is the one who must feel so very dejected, so very unloved, so very less a person because of how her now husband has treated her, knowing that he never wanted her. We'll also see the redemption of Leah, that although Jacob didn't want her, from her womb comes the line of Judah, the line of which the Savior of the world, Jesus Christ, will come. God chose the dejected Leah to carry the promise, but in the moment, Jacob only desires Rachel. So Jacob is given Rachel, but in exchange for another seven years of service to Laban. Now, I mentioned earlier this idea of a bride price and how Jacob served seven years for each of his brides. We don't really have much of a, a concept like that in our contemporary American culture, but we do have an even more enormous bride price paid in Scripture. You may know where I'm going with this, but let's look back into the Bible. We, we looked at this a couple weeks ago, but I want to point us back to Ephesians 5. So I'll give you a moment to get there, uh, because I think it's important that you see for this yourself. See this for yourself. And I'll take a moment to get there. All right. Um, so like I mentioned, Grady talked, uh, touched on this a couple weeks ago, and Paul is attributing marriage to the relationship between God and the church. So let's dive in. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25 says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. This is Jesus paying the ultimate bride price for us, his church, his body. It wasn't a normal bride price or even seven years of hard labor. Jesus paid the most expensive bride price ever recorded. And he paid it for a bride who was marred and soiled and imperfect. Jesus saw us in our shame, in our ugliness, in our sin and rebellion, and he loved us. Romans chapter 5 verse 8 tells us, But God shows his love for us, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We were Leah not Rachel. We were weak-eyed, less attractive, more broken, 
And even more so, we were rebellious and obstinate, throwing insults and attacks on Christ while he loved us. Yet, unlike Jacob, Jesus wasn't trying to get Rachel. He wanted us. And he wanted us in our current state, not after we've taken time to clean up, gotten our lives back on track, got out of the trajectory of sin that we've gotten ourselves into. He wanted us as we are. And he knows something very important. We can't be cleaned up. We can't get our lives back on track, at least not on our own. Jesus wants us how we are right now, and it is he who cleans us up. It is he who washes our feet and prepares us for the wedding feast. It is he who, as Ephesians 5 says, washed us with the water of the word, presenting us to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. It isn't us who do that, but Jesus. We've heard it said multiple times that Jesus paid the ultimate price, and that's true. A bridal price was paid to the father of the bride, and Jesus paid that price to buy us from our master, which was sin and death. But now, we as Christians are adopted into his family and are children of God and the bride of Christ. Do you see how this relationship works? Jesus, through his death on the cross as a perfect sacrifice, paid the bridal price to death, our master. He then brought us into his house, adopting us into his family, making us his bride. And church, you need to know that if you are born again and a true believer, then this is an undeniable truth for you. You are loved and cared for as the bride of Christ. And he is working in you and with you, with you, to purify you to be more like him. And yes, this purifying process can be hard. It can be really hard. It can be confusing. Look at Jacob, Leah, and Rachel. In that moment, do you think that they could see God working in their lives? Do you think that Leah could see that God was going to choose her to carry the line of the eternal king and savior Jesus? Probably not. She probably didn't see anything but pain and sorrow. But we know now what amazing things God did through her line and through her suffering. What about us? What in our lives are we struggling through where it seems that there's no way that God is in this or God is in something that we're dealing with? There is no way that God could be using this situation for his good and perfect plan. Maybe we are struggling, maybe we're struggling and hard and truly feel there's no way that God is in this. I know there was a point in my life 
right before God took hold of my heart and replaced my heart of stone with a heart of flesh where I knew about God, but I questioned everything he had decided to do in my life. I questioned the path that seemed unavoidable to me that had caused such heartaches in my life. And I remember specifically telling God that he should have done things a different way and that my way would have been better. And laugh is appropriate. And I believe at that moment that the Spirit took me to a very particular place in Scripture that spoke directly to my situation in life and may speak to some of you also who are here or online who hear this and feel the same way and maybe are asking the same questions. Job, chapter 38, comes in after a whole book about Job suffering for things that he didn't do anything to deserve, which is something that at that moment I couldn't have said about myself. Job had lamented his life and the struggles with, God reason, with God's reasoning for sending such calamity on, on him. And in Job, God answers back with the question that changed my perspective. Where were you? Chapter 38 of Job, verse 3, starts with God saying, Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me, if you have understanding, who determined its measurements? Surely you know. You see, we could never be in a position to understand everything about God or why or how he does things. But we, do, but we don't have to because God has promised that he works everything for his good and perfect plan. Some of us might be struggling with this, that there are th things happening that we don't understand have a hard time accepting. But we can know that, like mentioned before, God keeps every one of his promises. So through whatever is happening in our lives, whatever we're struggling through, whether self-inflicted or not, God is in complete control and is working out his perfect plan. And we can rest in knowing that what God is working for is going to ultimately be for our good because as Christ's bride, we are recipients of his perfect love and ultimate victory. Sometime this week, maybe even when you get home today, open your Bibles and read Romans 8 and see the amazing things that God has done for you and done for us now that we are his bride. See how we are adopted into his family, given life, how we're becoming heirs, and read about his everlasting love for us. All of that because Jesus chose us, Leah, paying the ultimate bridal price to bring us into a perfect marriage union with him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your amazing and perfect plan 
it is unfathomable, incomprehensible for us to know how you are working in this world and how you control and direct each situation. But I thank you that we don't need to know that. We don't need to know because we can trust you and you have already given us your promise that you love us, that you are working all things for your good plan, and that as part of your bride, all of us believers in Christ will sit with you at the wedding feast. So this suffering and confusion, struggle and worry are for but a short season, especially compared to the eternal life you gifted us with your bridal price paid on the cross. We will be forever grateful for your love and grace. Amen.